We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. I mean, sometimes I hear things about like how people do layoffs and it was just so bad. And then you realize, oh, this person never even managed anybody before, let alone go through a layoff, which very, very few people have done. So I think that's that, that's an adjustment in my YC thinking from, from before, which is like, maybe just don't jump. And I just say so much of strong execution is just knowing what mistakes to avoid. Kasser and Peter, welcome to One to a Thousand. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having us, Eric and Jack. Thanks. Kasser, why don't you start and give us a brief kind of history of the idea maze of, of applied intuition? Uh, you've, you were previously a COO at Y Combinator and partner there for many years, and you helped so many entrepreneurs think through their idea mazes. So I'm curious how your thinking on navigating the idea maze has, has evolved and how you applied it to your own uh, startup with applied intuition. Yeah, it actually goes back uh, before uh, Peter and I started Applied. We're both Michigan people and we both come from the automotive industry, uh, both our families and our kind of our, our, our work experience, you know, we're very, very deep in, in the business and they kind of left it uh, by coming to the Bay Area and working on like things like Google Maps. And then, so in time of YC, uh, Cruise was acquired by General Motors. Uh, we started talking again on what are interesting businesses we could build in the space. It was always, it was percolating. This space was percolating in the back of our heads for uh, a quite some time. Um, I think the, the cruise acquisition, I think showed that the car companies are going to play in the space. Like they're not going to just sit around and let Uber and Lyft and Waymo and Tesla take the business. So that was an important kind of, I think, realization. So we had a very methodical view about, um, about actually figuring out what business to build. So we were like, okay, the Venn diagram of cars. And software is the thing we want to play in. Okay, so what, what's an interesting business to build in it? And just for the audience to make sure we're all on the same uh, page, a business is revenue minus expenses equals profit. <laughs> it's not just, it's not just like not just raising money. <laughs> yeah, just raising money or series A or series B. So we were already thinking about cost basis. And one of the true things about the Bay Area is the cost basis is high. So it's, so we wanted not to work on, and I think our own technical area of interest, we didn't want to work on something that would be like a commodity thing. So we, we always kind of veer towards more, let's say the NVIDIA rather than, you know, it's like a giant company that does like pretty easy stuff. There's just, there's many, uh, but NVIDIA is just a great example of a very technical company that wins on their technical strengths. And so that went into like a pretty methodical view of, okay, what's in the car and the cars roughly can be split into electrification and autonomy roughly. So we're like electrification battery, you know, that that's, that's not an area of expertise for us or Silicon Valley, like in terms of recruiting people, battery tech is really big in China, et cetera. So then we're like, okay, within the autonomy space, uh, or the software space within the vehicle, then you can split that up. And it's a lot of people work on algorithms or functions in, in the automotive set of words. Uh, but not a lot of people working on the tools. And then we said, okay, well, why don't we look at the tools? And then within tools, there's like huge stack, everything from, you know, dynamics all the way to, you know, in autonomy, specifically perception and, and controls, uh, perception path planning. There's all these tooling companies that do all these different things. And we picked a very specific sub tool, uh, you know, to get into as a wedge. And our whole view from when we started the company is this is going to be a multi-product company. 
So, if, you know, this whatever five minute explanation sounds very like what a, a, a Harvard MBA would describe of coming up with a business idea. It's because I'm a Harvard MBA who came up with a business idea. Let's have random, uh, you know, and, and I mean, when I say I, is that definitely it's in partnership with Peter, but uh, yeah, I don't know if there's anything that, I mean, it was very methodical. We had uh, hundreds of pages of notes. I mean, it was not a, it wasn't like haphazard. Yeah. Yeah. I would just add that. Uh, so we both spent enough time working uh, either directly in automakers or with automakers that we had seen and we knew the types of tools that are, that are being used in engineering for automotive systems. And uh, there's a deep legacy, right? I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these tools uh, date back to initial releases from Windows 3.1 or, or maybe Windows XP at the almost latest. And, uh, and so here we are uh, decades later and, uh, and these tools are still uh, somewhat hampered by these, uh, the, the, the earliest versions that they were designed for. Uh, the, the whatever operating system at the time. And so um, I do think in, in most industries that are, uh, that are using significant tooling, every few decades, there is a real sort of changing of the tides in terms of, uh, okay, let's start from scratch. Let's, let's, uh, let's really change how we're doing this. And, uh, and that was the opportunity that we saw in automotive. Um, and I think there's many aspects of our tools that would not have been possible even five years before we started. Yeah, on the, on the business side, worth, again, for founders who are looking at ideas, one of the things we also always thought about was budgets. So you're selling to enterprises, where's this budget gonna come from? And uh, simulation is already something that automakers and companies already buy. They buy it for aerodynamics or they buy it for crash tests. So that was also kind of in the back of our heads, like, oh, we know if we build something useful, there will be budgets here for this. Uh, like we're not the first tooling company out there. There are multiple multi-billion dollar pure play tooling companies, uh, Ansys and uh, MathWorks and DSpace. And, I mean, they're really, really great companies out there. So we knew that there was at least a business to be built. The last thing I'll say about the idea maze is, I, I think Peter Thiel, I think, is the one who had this idea, which was um, you you want to know something about the market that other people don't know. Earn secret, yep. Yeah, and if it's not obvious, like, Peter and I know a lot about the car business. I mean, we, we make this joke that, you know, we sometimes we forgot more about the car business than a lot of people learn because you grow up with it, right? I mean, you, you, your, your family, I think he's every, every, every like adult <laughs> male is like an automotive engineer. It's true that like every dinner conversation, my entire childhood was about automotive engineering. And <laughs> you just, you learn an awful lot over many years. I'd be curious since you took such like a methodical approach and You've also spent time at YC or, you know, you've both just seen lots of other companies where, you know, a lot of times sort of the YC lore, at least, is often, you know, you should, you know, only start a company that you just had this particular idea that you just like couldn't not do. And that's, you know, a sort of a different ethos, I think, than this. I think probably Lattice is everything somewhere in the middle, but we were probably closer to that YC thing. Um, I'm curious if it just both work or is it just like there are, you know, you're at a different stage in your career and so a different things appropriate later in your career versus earlier in, in your career. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, on I like, think what you last said, I think is true. I think we're, we're not, uh, if it's not obvious, we're not in our early 20s. Uh, and so I think that's partly true. But I mean, we love the space. I mean, right, like we, we, we tried to leave the space. We left Michigan and tried to like, you know, became refugees at Google and still <laughs> we end up back in the automotive business. I mean, I love the business to, to be very clear. I mean, we really believe that the car is going to be a software product. So I, I just don't, I, I think the narrative maybe is, is different and maybe we just describe it in a more pragmatic way. But I think we kind of fall into a lot of those, like we fundamentally believe the car is going to be a software product. I mean, that, that, at, like we really, really believe that's, that, that's the case. 
I think what's different is um, we we just uh, yeah we we wanted to build a business. I think it wasn't enough that it was an idea, right? It wasn't enough that it was something a problem that needed to be solved. Those things were not enough, and that might lead to the that might be a pull on that string of maturity, which is like, hey, I'm pretty sure we could raise money, and I'm pretty sure we could have a pretty interesting sounding idea, but we actually need this thing to be sustainable, and so that's why we thought thought about the business a lot early on. Do you think more founders should think about that from the beginning than they do? Or do you think that it's okay, generally speaking, for people to just jump in when they've got like a problem they want to solve without thinking too hard about, it? is this a good business? I, yeah. Well, my, my perspective is certainly before you go out and scale your headcount, I mean, it gets, we, we were working on this, honestly, for, for quite a while before we raised money. Um, and so uh, that, that's like more of the creative phase. Um, the moment you raise money, expectations get set. The moment you hire people, a path has been chosen because all those take a lot to unwind. Yep. So I would be very careful about that. In terms of, yeah, I, I uh, in terms of like, what's the right way? It's all random. Every variant works. I think you just find the variant for yourself. The thing I would say is, it's not. It's very rare that the, it works the first time. So uh, you know, I always say like advice if you're if you want to be a founder. The first time you'll waste, let's say, three years on something. You're just—it's like imagine if we all decide. Imagine this podcast is about woodworking, and uh, and you know, you you asked us, was the first table you ever built a masterpiece? It's like no, it was <laughs> trash. And then I spent many years honing the craft. And people don't look at being a founder as being—it's it's a craft. And I think that leads to lots of deep disappointments because they feel that they're somehow deficient because it didn't work the first time. And I think it's just like if you want to be a great engineer or if you want to be a great designer or an artist or uh, whatever, you know, whatever, it's just going to take time and, and uh, approaching with that feedback loop. The one wrinkle there, or one pushback to that idea is there, there's this advice out there. I'm curious if you agree with it, which is that older founders or seasoned founders uh, should take uh, execution risk and younger founders should take market risk, which is to say, yeah, the first, if you're woodworking, the first woodwork, you know, first table you make is going to be crap. But if you're a younger founder and you get into crypto or AI at the right time, you might you might get lucky. Uh, or you know, if you're willing to take market risk, and you're right. Yes, that, that, I think that, that I think that's correct. Uh, there, there's some truth in that. The um, the thing that I think when I hear analysis like that, being at YC and 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 having you know invest on the other side is you can become very like um, cerebral in like how things are done. It's like if you read a McKinsey report on like. Chinese imports of steel. This is an example. This is like very, you know, detailed, well thought report. And like, really, it's like a mess. It's like, actually, there's this half owned company. And sometimes we have to import through Mexico. And, you know, Chinese steel is low quality. So we went to Korea. And like, it, the reality is so different. So I think if you're a founder, I would also be very thoughtful or I, I would, I would be very, uh, uh, uh um, aware that these kind of thoughtful ideas are, are much more theory than they are practice. And practice, you just got to get out there and learn what you should. Because the thing that's not obvious in these very generalized theories is the individual in the arena. That person actually so much is built around their skills and weaknesses and their network and their age and their access to capital and all of these other things and their ideas and their energy level and their creativity. And that just changes the entire, it takes all the theory out the window. And so that's why it can be, it can feel very, very random. But I, I, I would implore, do it because that's the thing that helps you figure it out. Now, the counter where I, I've had some views that have changed from my time at YC, uh, at like, you know, 
go, going into the third time. One of those views that's changed, we, we hire lots of young, ambitious uh, engineers at Applied. And we often talk about them leaving uh, and starting a company. And uh, the, one of the things I've come to realize is there's folks out there who are like in their early 20s. They've never managed anybody. They've never, they haven't done basic things that you need to do at work to kind of like how to run effective meetings. And, and they're like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do a startup. One of the people I, I said to, I said, Hey, this is like, cause he said to me, he said, hey, you say there's no way to learn how to be a founder than just being a founder. Right. So I said, yeah, but it's like, listen, we're on board, we're climbing Everest and Peter and I have gone up and we've come down a little bit and we're like, holy shit, that is difficult. And you're like, I'm ready to go. And it's like, but Hey, you know, I'm just using a random name. Hey, Steve, you don't have climbing shoes. You're, you're wearing slippers. This is going to be a disaster. This is a problem. You've never managed people. You've never shipped a product. You know what product market fit is. You don't know how to recruit. You don't know these really core, core things. But if you spend a couple of years and you learn some of those things, so when you go out, you'll have some of that muscle. So then you can allocate your part of your brain on other things and you have some foundation to work on. That's a change. I think uh, I remember asking Paul Graham, maybe late night 2012 sometime, just hanging out at YC after like a demo day pitch. It's like, oh, you know, do you think people should drop out of school and just start companies? And he surprisingly said no. And he said, well, you have these peers and your cohorts, you want to learn from them. And then you want to pick up some actual skills before you go start a company. So maybe that's my biasness. I'm older now. It's my third company. And I just think of how little that I knew there. But I think there's also truth in it because the narrative in the public of the Patrick Collison's, the, the young genius, those are much more the exception. The median age at YC was 30. Uh, like it's just like the, the, the actual companies get built by people who have some experience in hiring and firing and doing all these things. I mean, sometimes I hear things about like how people do layoffs and it was just so bad. And then you realize, oh, this person never even managed anybody before, let alone go through a layoff, which very, very few people have done. So I think that's, that, that's an adjustment in my YC thinking from, from before, which is like, maybe just don't jump. And I just say so much of strong execution is just knowing what mistakes to avoid. <laughs> and, uh, and it really is just experiences knowing what mistakes to avoid. Yeah. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Well, it's funny because like when starting Lattice, I was like, especially in the first couple of years, I was just like, wow, there are like 50 things you have to be good at as a founder to like, you know, keep the thing going. And you can learn some number at once, but it's like, it's helpful if you knew 25 before you got started. So you're only learning 25 rather than 50. I'll use one specific example. Uh, when I was leaving business as an engineer and I worked in engineering and, uh, and product. And when I left business school for two years, I worked in finance. I was a, like a FP and like director of finance in a large retailer, Sears Holdings, which is owned by a hedge fund that, 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 that who recruited us out of, out of business school. And, um, one of the reasons I did the job was I didn't know anything about finance. Like I didn't know the difference between gross margin and net margin or what's operating margin or what's the income statement, what's the balance sheet. Like all these things were, I didn't know what the stock market did. I didn't know the difference between a hedge fund and a private equity, but all these things that you don't know. And the question was, well, why? I said, well, that's kind of the blood of a company. You have to understand how money flows in a company. And I think about if I had never had that experience, I think we would be a weaker company, mostly very specifically around recruiting. The moment we had to hire a finance person, I've already done the job. And so we have a fantastically strong finance team. And I, that's not because I know everything about finance. I just know enough to know what a good finance person looks like. And then the same goes all the way down. Product, design, 
recruiters. I mean, you just go all the way down the list. And the more of those functions you can get exposure to marketing, the more of those functions sales you can get exposed to, the better that you have more likelihood that you'll recruit the right senior person. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you guys have founder market fit and you're you know, chasing tailwinds. When you're with founders out there who are 26, who maybe spent three years at a healthcare company, or I don't know, pick some, some industry, there's a question as to whether they you know, continue working in the industry they've worked at, even if it's not obvious that that's the, that's the industry of the future, or whether they, hey, AI is here, crypto is here, whatever, like whatever you know, new trend that they can go, that they're early enough in their career that they can go get smart at, but they don't have any advantage yet. Yeah, I would say it's not about you. It's what the market wants. So hopefully the market wants something that aligns with your background and skills, but there's no justice. It's that it, it, might, it might not be the case. We got super lucky that the car business is going through a fundamental revolution. But when I left the automotive industry, I left it with, you know, like that's, I'm done. Like I'm never coming back to this world. And uh, it incidentally, really coincidentally, really uh, aligned. But, you know, also like I started in the, uh, mechanical part of the you know engineering world and and the electrical uh, engineering part of the engineering world rather than computer science and so like I think even between us I think I have more of a like uh, you know I have the zealousness of a convert as I like to say I I love software to a degree that even software engineers are like you know could just relax uh, because I just see how elegant it is relative to I spent years in factories it is very very difficult to you know when you have hardware bugs you know quality deficiency, or they don't call them hardware bugs, they call them, you know, quality, uh, quality problems. And it's just like, you can spend months chasing down a tiny, tiny, I have, I personally have, and you never forget those things. The line I spent years in factories, uh, conveys a gravitas that is, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, the book that we love, uh, at applied is uh, high output management by Andy Grove. I think it's maybe the best, but we, we require people to read it, uh, you know, and, uh, the, the, the point that I would say there is like, he uses so many analogies about factories. I do think it's influenced the way we run the company because I think we think about it as a machine. Yeah, constantly about productivity. And yeah, we constantly yeah. productivity. You, you think the thing about like in a factory, the thing you obsess about would be think about, about many things, but one of the things you obsess about is inventory management and material like material handling. And uh, in the software company, most of your your most of your money is going to be in salaries. So in the inventory is actually humans, and so it's, it's managing. And like, and you should be spending an inordinate amount of time on figuring out how these humans work and how to make them better, make them more happy, make them more productive, talk about productivity, all that stuff. And I often find founders, this like a second thing to them because really they're thinking about, do I really like crypto or do I really like something else? Or do I, am I going to be able to raise money? And it's like actually the factory and what it outputs is actually the most important thing. Everything else is just a, a secondary thing to that. Totally. Let's segue into people, team, culture. You guys think about it a lot. What are non-obvious ways in which you think about it? Or what sort of unique contribution do you think you have here? We put a, a true daily emphasis on culture in the company. Um, I mean, to, to an extreme extent. We talked about it for an hour today. Yeah. Peter and I literally were for, uh, with, with the new, new teams. To, to the extent that it's, it's a hard criteria in our recruiting. We, we compensate against it. We have a bunch of mechanisms uh, on which we actually actively cultivate the culture that we, we have in the company. And I think it's, it's a, it's a competitive advantage that our competitors just can't copy from us. And it's like what allows us to be fast and build high quality things in new areas that allow us to take new markets. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, just for everybody, cause I'm not, a lot of people define culture in a different way, define values in a different way. This is just 
how do two people behave with each other? Whether that's in a conflict, whether that's an agreement, whether it's in an idea session, how are they behaving? And when somebody falls off the curve, how do we identify they're off the curve? Are they really off the curve? Who's off the curve? What's the curve? Just talking about that and always kind of realigning towards, well, we do it this way. And if those, if those values are not consistent, ours you could roughly boil down to extreme pragmatism. If they're not really aligned, then you'll have people starting to do things which are not consistent and the whole company feels like it's a little bit of a mess. I mean, I can still say confidently, you know, the company is still kind of beats together. And, and that's really, that's really great because we're, you know, we're a larger size now. Totally. You guys are, I think almost 450 people and, 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 and you're global, right? And there's, there's been this kind of, you know, um, tension towards, or this sort of tendency, people are saying, Hey, let's get back in offices. Let's, let's, you know, the experiment with remote didn't go well for lot, lots of companies, you know, uh, mine, mine included. I'm curious how you've thought about that given your, your, your global, uh, company. Yeah, this is a, this uh, shows our Detroit roots, maybe the deepest of any question you've asked so far. We've been five days in office since uh, summer of 2021, uh, June of 21. So that's an hour. Over right when it was allowed. Yeah. Yeah. When it was allowed. <laughs> Peter always likes to make sure that asterisk <laughs> is there. When it was legally permitted, we were, we were back in. And, uh, one of our early team members, uh, she was just remarking on this, uh, the other day that she had this great line. She says the founders are the soul of a company. And I, I thought that was really, and so she's one of our earliest team members. And she said, um, one of the right, you know, really right decisions we made is actually to come back in office when it wasn't very obvious. And she was like, at that time, I was like, you know, Casser and Peter, are they just being like draconian? Like, or, or like we're coming back. And it's like, now we look back, it's like a huge reason why we've been successful. Um, because the moment that we, we put that uh, bar there, then all the recruiting has always been like that for a couple of years. So we're not in this mixed mode. We, we, we had some people that we hired when we were remote. But even then, we were like, let's try to hire around our offices in case we want to keep that option open. Now, it's not I structurally disagree with remote. I, I wrote the GitLab check at YC, the first you know, public remote company, I, I, the amazing company. So I don't think structurally there's something better about in-office or remote. It's just you have to be at the end of the spectrum. And I think the middle is stuff. I continue to believe that. What's happened, though, is everybody's now in the middle. Like very few companies are fully remote. Very few companies are fully in office. Uh, and I think actually that's where the, 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 the values, because then you can align all of your processes towards it. In terms of why did we do it for us specifically, and this is not preaching or what everyone should do. We work on technically very difficult things and being in a room together and having an open conversation with a whiteboard. There's, we found that really hard to do on Zoom in the years that we were remote. And, and so, and then we did all these things that we measure our culture, right? We literally through, through surveys, uh, and, uh, and consistently, and we saw happiness really increase. We had conversations when we were before we coming in May of that year, uh, multiple conversations that Peter and I led in the company about, should we be remote? We have a bunch of people in San Francisco, we're a Mountain View company. Uh, and so we have a bunch of people in San Francisco. We asked the San Francisco people, do you want to start commuting again? Cause if we're in office, we're going to be in office. You have to start commuting again. We asked new grads. We asked the early employees with these different cohorts and just through honestly, through conversation, we concluded five days. The first view that we had was we're going to be fully remote. And all the cohorts responded negatively to that. They, they, they said, because our two biggest expenses in the company are offices and food. We pay for lunch and dinner. Literally our two biggest expenses after, after employees. And we think about the bottom line. So it's an easy way to save a bunch of money. And the team very much was against that. So then we thought, okay, maybe we do three days. And then just to, just to 
we have customers come on site, we do recruiting and we do interviews. And it's like, well, if a customer flies all the way from Korea, 15 people, they just had a 20 hour trek and they walk into an empty office that doesn't inspire confidence. And by the way, in Korea, everybody's in office and in Germany and in Detroit, everybody's in office. This remote thing exists for not big area companies, but companies that are in high technology. In most other fields that are non high technology, they're in an office because they have to because they're physical things. They're running a hotel or they're running, you know, since so you can't run a hotel remote like that, that that's how it is. So the, 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 our customers then expect when they come in here to see people and meet people. And then there's a last very practical thing about even with customer meetings of sometimes we have customer meetings or uh, recruiting session, whatever it is, where you're pulling somebody that wasn't planned to be in the room. So if you have this hybrid situation or somebody's remote that doesn't work here, we can literally just go down. And you say, hey, actually, you know, uh, Jake knows that stuff. Well, why don't you bring Jake in or, you know, Carlo, he worked at, he worked on Mercedes, Br bring him in and we can have that conversation. And that comes across. And then I think from a customer's perspective, they see us, we move really fast. And it's not only perception, it's truth. I, I don't know your, your view on it. Yeah, I would just emphasize, I think, so our products, what we build are on the extreme end of highly technical, right? There's a, a large component of very, very deep, complex math. We have a a high percentage of the company have PhDs in their relevant fields. Yeah, literally have the company's PhDs and masters, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I think as you get to sort of that extreme end of the technical spectrum, the the value of being in person, it's uh, disproportionately uh, important. And uh, and we saw very meaningful performance and uh, uh, just general productivity differences on our most technical projects uh, from the, uh, from the, the remote in-person shift. Um, so, so much so that, um, those teams were just incredibly energized and passionate and, uh, you, you could even see almost a doubling of their productivity. Yeah. And the last thing I would say in terms of uh, a lot of founders, I think, think about, well, what about top of funnel? Everyone I interview says, I want a hybrid. I want remote. I'm not going to look at it. We're fortunate enough. We never did layoffs or anything like that. And, uh, we hire about, let's say 50 to 70 people per quarter. So somewhere around there. And, uh, that's not that much. Like within, 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 you know, you take our Mountain View office within 25 minutes from here, you have Apple, Facebook, Google, NVIDIA headquarters, not to mention all the other companies like LinkedIn and Intel. There's so many companies, but those are the big ones. Just within 20, 30 minutes there, there must be, I mean, how many engineers do you think? Like a hundred thousand at least, at least. Yeah. Like, concern, like, and if we can't find 50 <laughs> that, that are okay to come in five days a week, then our recruiting team where we're maybe we're, we'd have, we have a wrong, wrong product. I think it's a different maybe question if you're Google or you're Microsoft, you're 10,000 people a quarter and you're letting go 10,000, but maybe it's different. But uh, yeah, that, that, that's what's worked for us. Again, I'm not trying to preach or, or say that everyone should do this, but it's worked notably well for us, I, I would say, to the point where it's a competitive advantage. I love having a competitive advantage, which was like a baseline, like, you know, four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's, it is funny how that's just like, that's so unique now. And that was just everybody forever before. A hundred percent. I mean, if you met a company that's fully remote, you'd be like, whoa, what are you, GitLab? No, what, who are you? That, like, that's like, whoa, like a handful. And now it's really, it's really rare to hear a five days a week company today in the Bay Area. Yeah, it, it works though. That's all we can say. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. I'm curious to unpack and hear a little bit more. You sort of said that your culture could be described as like radical pragmatism. Um, which is cool because a lot of people, when they try to describe their culture, even a concise description is usually way longer than that, or you know, three or four or five values are named. There's a sentence, but you gave two words. 
Um, I, I'm sure there's a lot under that, but could you like pull that open a little bit? I'm just curious to hear your particular sort of essence of culture. I'll let Peter take the first step. Yeah, well, uh, so I would say certainly we, we have, uh, let's say, all of all of those things that you mentioned in terms of we absolutely have a set of values that, that are absolutely important. And those would be the longer form version of that. But they are all rooted in that radical pragmatism. Um, and again, uh, the, the themes for a successful company, you need to be very customer focused. You need to be uh, quickly responding to what your customers want. You need to build fast. You need to build fast. You need to be building high quality products. We don't want uh, any of our individual values to be innovative, but rather it's the execution of the culture. I think that is innovative. Yeah, I, I, 100%. This is why this guy's a good co-founder. Uh, I mean, I really, I, I completely agree. Uh, it's, it's all about the execution. And so I think maybe, maybe another way to phrase that question, Jack, is like, why, do, why don't people execute against their own values that they set up? Because um, let's say let's say it's a, a, a superset of maybe twenty five values that most companies can can fit into, and depending on their founders' proclivities or the market that they're in or the go, go to market motion, I should say, um, you know, different values are going to be more important. We're an enterprise heavyweight, large ASP type of business. Um, I think a lot of times the values don't actually map to the business or to the founders, and then most importantly, they're just not consistently applied, and uh, and so. You know, and I think this sometimes is correlated with experience, but sometimes it's just personality. Some people are just more consistent and they just, I think one of the things that why people are not, a, not consistent isn't because people are nefarious, it's just really boring to keep saying the same three things again and again and again and again and again and again. And the company gets bigger and bigger. You say the same three things again and again and again and again. But I think that's like the execution aspect of it. And then, um, a part of this kind of radical pragmatism is hey, there's this great book, Radical Candor. It's about being really honest about are you actually fast? Are you actually don't disappoint customers? Do you actually, you know, uh, uh, hold a high quality bar? Do you actually want high output from team members? You measure it, do you compensate against it? I think it's just like that follow through. So it's consistency plus follow through. And it's just difficult. Let's use another, another topic. You're working out. Everybody knows you should be healthy. Why do so few people consistently work out? Because it's hard. You get kids, you have all these things come up in life. You are tired. You literally have, you wake up and you're like, I don't want to go to the gym. That's just how it is. And so, but there are some people who do and some people who don't. And, and, and that's, that's the bit that, and, and when you're running a company, that's what it is multiplied by hundreds of people. It's like some people who apply customer orientation and some people who don't. Any particular tactics that have been most helpful to you? I know you talked about like, you, know, you spent an hour today talking with people about it. And so like, what are those touch points? You talked about compensating against it. So like, obviously there's the discipline and, you know, in working out, we all know the discipline is just like, go to the gym, eat healthy food. Like, what does the discipline of living values mean for you guys? Yeah. So uh, I do think talking about it is part of the discipline because it's hard to, it, 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 uh, half of that function is just, rec you know, recalling that these values exist and why, and, and, and then, and then apply. The, the, the second thing is, like almost like in situation prioritization based on those values. So uh, you're hiring somebody and they're particularly strong technically, but they don't seem like they're customer oriented or they, they're going to be very difficult to put in front of a customer. Uh, that's an, a, a clear example. Like we've definitely rejected people who we thought were actually brilliant and then couldn't actually put in front of a customer. When recruiting sees that and you see rejections go through that way, that's underlining the value. So it's actually practicing, practicing the values. Other examples, one of our core values is laugh a lot. If, if 
if I say, if you're doing a, a recruiting, uh, a, a, you know, introductions and people are not happy and not laughing, we're doing something wrong. And it's not to be fake and it's not to fake laugh and just be like this, this corporate nonsense facade of like, I'm happy even though I'm suffering. It's not that. It's like, actually, we try to recruit people who are funny. And funny people tend to make other people laugh. And then, and then that becomes kind of the okay thing. Like everyone, then everyone somehow is a bit more lighthearted. They don't take, they don't take feedback so deeply. It's just all these very, it's just like the gym, gym thing. When you work out, there's all these benefits you get that are beyond just working out. Like you, you feel happier. Your skin clears up. All these, you know, you grow hair. I've been kidding on the hair. I'd be working out every day if the, the hair thing was, was true. Fun. But <laughs> just, to, just to, to, to round out the, the point about uh, hiring people who are funny, I think we, we really think about the composition of teams and having yeah. the right mixture of personalities. Yeah. And right, So we wouldn't want, let's say, uh, extremely boisterous. We would want every person that we hire to be loud and boisterous. Yes. But having one boisterous person in each team is actually a very positive thing. Yeah. And, uh, and then we, we actually think about that balance and what culture are we building and how do we have a broader company culture and then have that represented at smaller scale for each of the subgroups. Yeah, a company is just, again, like just fundamental questions or fundamental definitions. What is a company? A company is just a group of people working together on projects. And so you think back at your college days or your grad school days and working on projects, what are the problems you'd have when you're working on projects? Well, you'd have free riders, you'd have people who, work, who, want, who want to take all the credit, and then you'd have groups that just work well together. Everyone kind of shows up on time, you're like, man, this is a solid group. I know this project's going to get done. It's going to get done on time. And there's no teeth mashing. We're trying to get to one of those experiences, not, not, not the other one. And so it, it starts with the recruiting, but it goes to talking about it and, and, and all the way to the other end of compensation around it. When we do compensation reviews for our managers, when we do compensation reviews for our uh, individual contributors, literally we look at value adherence as the input. As an example where it can quickly um, deviate, Jack, in, in, your, in your universe, um, our head of people uh, came up with a new matrix of how we were going to uh, do compensation. And it, it, it's funny, like Peter and I reviewed it. We're like, oh, this all, this all. And then like, it just occurred to us, oh wait, these are not actually our values. <laughs> like, let's just take this concept and put our values on top of it. Now we get true alignment. So even in a company that's obsessed with these kind of things, it's just very easy to drift. Um, and, but I think, uh, you know, uh, for, for founders, the first 10 people have to kind of really absorb those values. So you need, if laughing is a core value, which for us being a hard driving company, if we don't, if, if you're not laughing on the other end, it becomes insufferable and you'll see attrition go up. So we, this, like, it's not just a nice to have that people are having a good time. It's a core requirement. Then we have to recruit people who have that. It's, it's so fascinating because in the last few years, there have been some challenges at a lot of companies where a small set of employees will kind of wield the company's values against them, or, you know, they'll be like activists within, you know, we mentioned Google before, that's a famous example. But, and you could say as a value, we don't want any of these types of people, but you could also say, hey, we want people who are gonna come in five days a week and who are gonna be funny. And I bet you guys had way less of that than, than other companies. Yeah, I think I, there's some truth, yeah, absolutely there's some truth in that. I mean, another, another like uh, uh, controversial, uh, I would say, or a controversial maybe too strong of a word, but a, a not common thing that we say, is in opening recruiting calls, our recruiters say, we don't pay top comp. And that's almost like for a company that's an autonomy that hires PhDs almost exclusively from Stanford, MIT, and Berkeley, and Google, like over half the company comes from just those four institutions, an extremely competitive group of people that are sought after. You lose people right off the top. But what I think the smart people recognize, honestly, is 
the equity grows and I'm going to be fine. And so the truth is the vast majority of our team is in the 99th percentile of compensation because they've grown with the equity. And so like these, uh, these little things actually end up playing. So what, what we're really doing at the top of the funnel by saying five days in office and, uh, you know, not top comp is you're just filtering out that person who's on the internet forum saying, you know, I have 500K total comp from Microsoft. I have an 800K offer from Coinbase, but I want to make sure Coinbase is in a pip shop and I can do 10 to four because I don't want a full-time job. This, I'm, I'm, this is real. I'm not making this up. The 10 to four, I don't want Coinbase to be a pip shop. Is Coinbase a pip shop is a real question. And that to me is like, even in the worst world of finance, when people were getting overcompensated in the nineties and, and 2000s, they were still working stupid hours. And was it a good use of time? You know, that's, that's debatable. But it's like, that's what kind of gets tech kind of a bad name. And I'm not saying we should have a reality where everyone's chained to a desk and working seven days a week. That's not, that's not sustainable and it's not fun. And people, you, you lose people. But you also can't go to the other extreme. So there's a subcomponent of our unspoken value that you're hearing, which is we look for balance. So we really look for balance. And we don't want people on either extremes. And, and I think we, we, we have all these mechanisms to self-sort uh, so one of the ways, you know, the tactical things, Jack, as you talked about, Peter and I shot a bunch of videos that talk about these core concepts. The, the most, most specific one, Eric, as you're mentioning, is focus on what we call focus on the work, which is we don't talk about politics inside the company. And Peter and I spend like, whatever, three to five minutes describing why. And it's, I think, a very rational view, which is it can be divisive. We're, we're a software company in Mountain View. That's the problems we're trying to tackle. We can't tackle every, everything else. Um, and there's some, and we say in the video, it's not that we're morally superior to you or inferior to you. We're also not inferior because we do it this way. It's just that this, that's the company we're offering you and don't accept the job offer with that, with the expectation. And that has helped us tremendously. This, we did a video on five days in office. We do a video I and mean, we just talk about these things and it's just worked well. That makes a lot of sense. I want, I want to segue into a thread you dropped earlier when you said you mentioned one of the things you changed your mind about since, uh, since YC. Um, what's another, what are other things you've, uh, you've evolved on since your, since your time at YC about company building? Oh man, I think top of the list, I, it, now, you know, still occasionally angel invest. I'm always looking at, can these people recruit? That's the business. <laughs> like, like everybody talks about what's the, the business of Silicon Valley is recruiting. In the sense that it's, that's, if you, if you have the right people, you can attack almost any technical problem. It used to be fundraising used to be the kind of, but there's a lot of capital out there now. So fundraising is actually not the business. So now I, I would say like the aptitude for those two people, sometimes two young people can be very effective at recruiting. And sometimes two experienced managers can be very ineffective at recruiting. So it's not, you know, uh, anything that's correlated to, uh, you know, something obvious, but there's some people are just better at recruiting that. Other things I think, you know, um, that is, that I learned this actually at YC, but I didn't know it before I went in is good companies tend to be good pretty quickly. Uh, in the sense of there's this narrative of being in the woods and the, 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 the founders who toil away for a couple of years. And, and there are exceptions and the, the, you, you can come up with companies for sure that fit that. But vast majority of companies, they start, they hit the seed round, growth. And then that B, the C, and, and even at a breakneck pace, you're still only at the D six, seven years later. It's not like you're at the D in like two years, right? Um, and so I think more and more you'll see the Brex ramp 
mercury kind of explosive growth. I'm just using three that are on the similar category. Explosion, uh, you could say, what's the hop in? There's a number of the, the companies that really grow really fast. Lattice. Lattice, yeah. I think you'll see you, you see that that more. I agree with both of those. Um, I also, I use those both as lenses internally too, where like, you know, we're also a multi-product company and I kind of tend to think that when another product is going to take, it's going to take fast. Not always. And obviously you can inflect the curve, but I, I think like if something's going to hit you, you know, sooner than people might want to admit, generally speaking. And I also think with the recruiting thing, I, for me, that's a big lens with execs too, is like, they can be smart, they can know everything, but like one of the big jobs of an exec too, just like an early stage founder is, you know, be a recruiter. Yeah. And there's a, there's a practical reason, by the way, the, the, let's say the absorption rate of the market has uh, increased. It's because each of the subcomponents to get a product to market have all been oiled. So imagine if we yeah, starting company in 1995, uh, first thing we'd have to buy servers, like, like, just like, like the basic things you'd have to like, just run a website. You'd have to do all the, there's no frameworks. There's nothing. Now, everything you can buy off the shelf, the onboarding software, the office management, the, the conference room management, every single, uh, the, how the, how the seller and the companies uh, reaches out to a can, uh, reaches out to a, a, a prospect, how they engage the prospect. How they see there's a prospect actually moving down the fit. So the entire pipeline from idea to consumption is oiled and greased in a thousand different ways. And so now when you have product market fit, the market just sucks it down. And that's both good and bad. It's like, you know, it's like laws of physics here. So what do you lose because you've gotten this uh, uh, hyper? You can also, companies can implode much faster too. So you've seen these companies that become really big and go uh, basically become irrelevant in a much it's like, you know, in, in, the, in the enterprise world, yeah, the sales are slower, but getting kicked out of the company is also slower. So it's like, you know, so when I do hear uh, pithy things like fastest company to 100 ARR, I, I like a part of me thinks, well, it might be the fastest company down to zero ARR from 100 because <laughs> there's some law of physics, which is they got the product quickly absorbed into the market. That means the market is willing to find an alternative just as fast. We're talking very abstract concepts, always the case, but I think you guys uh, follow here. I want to gear the last 10 minutes towards product market fit. Um, Cassie, there's something you, you've thought a lot about. What, what's something uh, non-obvious that you, you, you have a, a take on or what is sort of your um, unique insight or what you've uh, learned about finding product market fit? Uh, product market fit is not a, a destination. It is a, a state of mind. Like that's the most, <laughs> most, yeah, like the, the most bullshitty way of saying, uh, most bullshitty way of saying, uh, you, you, you can get product market fit sometimes in a, a subset of customer group or on, a, on an individual product and multiple products or an individual price point, but that doesn't mean you'll always have it. So you, what you're constantly really, it's, it's, the, it's the vague word to describe the love of the product by the market. And those, you know, so it's like, how enthusiastic is the person? You take yourself, you might have product market fit with a specific podcast or YouTube channel, consume a lot of that, but then you stop consuming it. So you go in and out of product market fit, even as an as a consuming individual unit of of of, of content. Uh, so I think for founders, I think thinking about that is important. I think we had this. I, I remember at one point we we were doing like I don't know 15 million ARR. We were asking like, do you think we have product market fit? And Mike Maples was like, yeah, you have product market fit. <laughs> Companies don't usually get to this this fast. Maybe the other thing that I believe that other people don't believe is, you know, it's just so easy to lose it. And so we're just super, super paranoid about like, we just, 
don't want to be lying to ourselves. And what's, 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 what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, so, so I think, um, when you hit a point where customers are demanding more out of your product than you can keep up with, and they're willing to pay you a bunch, uh, to, uh, or they'll, they'll pay you whatever it takes for you to solve those things. That's when I feel like you really have product market fit, but recognizing, like Hazard said, it's always changing. Like the, the market is always changing and so new competitors are emerging, new alternatives are emerging. And, and if those new competitors, they suddenly change the perspective through which, or change the lens through which, uh, the, the whole category is being viewed. All of a sudden, this product market that you thought you had all of a sudden disappears. One of yeah, one of the mistakes I think growth founders make sometimes when they hit a plateau uh, and uh, or something is not working is they uh, they bring the company in, they do riffs, and they say, um, you know, we need to perform better. We need we need you know we we need we need to we need to focus. And I think the real vernacular, the words they should say is we need to refine product market fit, and that really changes everyone's perspective. And because everyone realizes, oh, we're not in product market fit. So all the things that we'd assumed to be true are no longer true. And that actually changes people's perspective because if you don't say it that way, then people assume, well, the thing that we've been doing still works. We just got to do it harder. And so then it'll work. It's like, no, the, 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 the puzzle which your piece went into is doesn't accept the piece anymore. So we need to fundamentally change it or this whole thing is done. And I think, I think you know, that, that maybe that's just an advice for more for, 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 for later stage folks. And when did you know that you had it or did you have different like phases of it or different, uh, a bunch of attempts before finding it? Or what was, what was your, your journey? We, we have many products uh, at this point. And so each of them are at a different level of product market fit. And, and generally, you know, our kind of uh, meniscus line there is, can you pay for your engineers and your costs of that product? Right. And that's, that means you're self-sustaining uh, the default alive uh, concept. Um, and so I think that's what we're trying to do at individual product level. And that takes a actually slightly more sophisticated finance organization to really look at the company as like these sub-businesses that kind of work together. Because if you're not careful, you can actually go in this weird extreme of like tallying, you know, like, well, I did a meeting with this team and therefore they allocate this much headcount. There's all these weird, weird things that start happening. But yeah, it's, it's always evolving. And each of the products I think is in a different phase. But the, there are products for us that make a really good amount of money. And there's products that don't make any money. And so we have to always be balancing those needs. Yeah. To, to go full circle to the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned in the idea maze, you knew that you wanted this to be a multi-product company. Do you think more founders should be going in with that level of, of, of kind of foresight or detail? It's tough to say because it's just really hard to do. So it's kind of like, you know, why does, uh, I'm so out of the loop with sports that I even know the, 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 <laughs> like a, like why does Michael Jordan, you know, I think he's, that's my reference point. It's like mid nineties basketball. Uh, it's like, you know, why, why does, why does Michael Jordan put a ball in the hoop? You come up with lots and lots of reasons, but somehow he's figured out to put a lot of balls in, in the hoop. And so I don't want to just say to founders, you know, make sure you shoot really well. Like, yeah, like, it's like we get it. You're supposed to shoot really well. So I, 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 I don't know what the exact kind of answer there is in the, in the product, multi product. It is ideal. I think multi product companies are more, robust just because you're just not one of our products that take a, a open source hit or one of our products that take a competitor who comes in and underprices us but we got many others to come and then swarm them and that's worked really really effectively yeah, yeah i mean of, of course the the expectations that investors have for growth companies are that the revenues just keep growing to a, a, a the nth degree and uh, i think 
a trap that you can get caught in, right, is if you're um, the product that you built, all of a sudden you're you're uh, starting to hit some sort of ceiling on on the market. And so uh, that multi-product diversification all of a sudden allows you to have many bets towards keeping that revenue growing at the rate that the investors are expecting. And what's challenging though, you, you try to put a lot of bets down, guess what? Now you're, you're not focused. You're not, now you're not focused. And that's like, you know, you read Amp It Up, but you know, uh, Dr. Slootman says, it's all about focus, guys. Um, we we're, we're reading it, amp it up as a company, as a kind of our little book club. And, uh, and you know, that's like what he talks about all the time. So it's focus, focus. That's great. We're at the end here. This is a great episode. Is there anything uh, that we didn't get to that's important to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think, um, the, when people say doing a startup is hard, I think the misnomer is at least the misunderstanding I had, uh, I should say was, I thought it would be like intellectually complex problems or something like you just can't figure out how to architect this specific thing that you're, you're actually all that stuff's easy. The hard stuff is telling somebody it's five days in office and continuing to repeat that again and again. And so embrace as the word, as the saying goes, embrace the grind. That's actually the difficult part and take the path that you think is right. I mean, sometimes you're, what you think is wrong. So you have to be careful. So t- take the path you think is probably right, but don't be too confident in it, yeah. but be confident enough to take it. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of paradoxes along the way. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Kaz or Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Okay. Thanks guys.